Hello and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. I'm a graduate student myself, and I'll be your hostess for the show here on KALX Berkeley. So today I'm talking to Andy Konwinski, a PhD student in computer science. So welcome, Andy. Thank you very much. And we're going to be talking about measuring and improving the performance of programs that run on supersized computer clusters. So first, I know that you work in a lab of the computer science that's called the Rad Lab. So can you first tell us about what that is? Sure. Yeah. So the Rad Lab, uh, it's an acronym. It stands for Reliable Adaptive Distributed Systems. Mm. And it's kind of the systems lab uh, in the computer science department here. And what that means is that we're working on the kind of the core part of computer programming. And now um, with... And that's kind of traditional systems, so like kind of building your operating system on your computer. And now we've kind of taken a step back and started focusing on building the operating system for uh, a large number of computers, so like data centers or mm. um, this is where we take a large number of small computers and, and have them all talk to each other. Mm. And uh, the Rad Lab then is focused on allowing a very small number of people to manage and write software that runs on a large number of computers. Right, and that's what you refer to as a supersized computer cluster. Yep, yep. I like that. Um, okay, so in the Rad Lab vision statement, it says that your vision is pretty much what you just described, but to enable one person to invent and run the next revolutionary IT service, uh, operationally expressing a new business idea as a multi-million user service over the course of a long weekend, which you refer to as... Uh, Internet Fortune 1 million, and I, I like that too. So um, so what the Rad Lab is doing is enabling the Fortune 1 million to manage these supersized computer clusters. So kind of the origin <laughs> of that story and, and that tagline for the Rad Lab is a lot of these um, stories about one college student, like yeah. um, the guy who made Napster right. or the guy who made Facebook mm -hmm. and or the guy who made eBay. And what they do is they sit down for a long weekend and they come up with this new idea that catches on like wildfire. Mm. But the first iteration of their program um, tends to become so popular so fast that they end up rewriting their, their application like seven or eight times. So eBay's on like its seventh or eighth rewrite now. Mm -hmm. And that's from scratch just because they hit these kind of plateaus where the, their servers will crash because the, the application wasn't written to scale very well. Mm. And so the more users they get, the more they have to rethink, well, now the way we were doing this before isn't going to grow fast enough. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is enable somebody with a new idea to write it once from the very beginning and then it'll scale for the, with them as they grow. And where does the ability to scale come from? I guess the difference is that uh, it's actually kind of in the framework that sits underneath the code they write. Mm -hmm. So um, they were using kind of more traditional tools, like traditional programming languages, something like PHP. It's a lot of people use it for web programming. Mm -hmm. And now we've got all these like world-famous computer science professors sitting down and putting their brains into the project. Uh. And maybe we can still write PHP, but the, the kind of the underlying frameworks, the, like the operating system basically right. that interprets that code, is handling it differently. Right. So the same PHP used to run you know, on one computer. Now, without the programmer even knowing it, it'll run on tens or thousands of computers. Wow. Okay, so who is your target audience for the research that you do at uh, the Rad Lab? 
Well, someone um, who's wanting to start a revolution yeah, over a long definitely, weekend. Definitely. Definitely. Um, we we meet with Facebook and uh, Yahoo and Google and our, our founders, like kind of the people who who funded us the most, um, are the three big sponsors of our lab are our Sun Microsystems, mm-hmm. and they do a lot of software and Microsoft and Google. Hmm. And you're going to make your work available on your website for the littler people? Yep, or? yep. So it'll be available to download. Everything, um, If I think we'll eventually give the URL for the Rad Lab. And if you go there, you can find links to all the projects that are currently being worked on. Yes, for those of you who want to start a revolution over a long weekend, I'll give you the URL at the end of the conversation. Yeah, so... So you have to keep on listening. <laughs> they, can, uh. they can download everything from the individual projects' websites. Good. So if you just tuned in and you do want to start a revolution over a long weekend, you're listening to The Graduates on Calix. I'm talking today with Andy Konwinski from Computer Science about measuring and improving the performance of programs that run on supersized computer clusters. So uh, in the vision statement, it also says that you try to borrow technology whenever possible. So let's talk a little bit about the technology that you borrow, and mm-hmm. uh, specifically one that's called MapReduce. Um, oh, and I should also mention that you work with Matei Zaharia, who couldn't be here today, right. but um, I did want to mention his name. So first, what is what is MapReduce? MapReduce uh, became famous when Google wrote a paper about it um, last year, or sometime in the last few years, and um, essentially what it is, is it's a new it's actually an old way that they've repopularized. It's a way of thinking about make about distributed or parallelized computing that's easy. So um, it's it's it very highly abstracts all the complexities that go into to making one program run on hundreds or thousands of computers. So it's it's basically a framework that um, at an abstract level anybody could implement uh-huh. in software. And Google has implemented it in their in their data cluster, but they keep it a secret. They uh. keep everything a secret. Uh. And uh, so some open source people have been working on a project to re-implement it. But they are one of your sponsors, aren't they? That's right. Yeah. So they're interested in uh, Google. That's kind of an, uh, an interesting dynamic. So uh-huh. they're very secretive as a company. Uh-huh. They have a, a small... Um, branch of people that work on open source technology, so they're not against open source, but because they also borrow a lot from open source, especially ideas. Uh-huh. But um, they don't release any of their source code at all. Huh. They, what they really want us to do as an in, as a university is to to produce better educated computer scientists ah. that they'll consume on the other right. end. Right, the, the problem is lack of personnel, not necessarily. Right. Like That's exactly why huh. they're interested in us. Um, so, but back to MapReduce. So, how does it? How does it decide w- how to distribute which tasks to which nodes in the supersized computer cluster? It takes a large input file, something like a crawl of the, the internet, which could be, you know, now you're talking terabytes, yeah. petabytes, and okay. um, like, you know, thousands and thousands. Petabytes, of, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it takes this huge set of data, basically a text file. And it breaks it up into really small chunks, mm-hmm. all the same size. And then it gives each one of those chunks, which has just enough for one computer to handle, to a different node or computer in your supersized cluster. Right. And each one will kind of crunch on that for a while. It'll do the computation on it. Uh-huh. And then it'll kind of set it in a bucket. And then these the next wave of tasks, which is your reduced tasks, mm-hmm. all run on the same set of, of 
computers in your in your supersized cluster and grab the output from the map tasks um, across the network. So there's the shuffling stage where they all kind of grab from each of the map tasks on all mm-hmm. the different computers, and then they do their crunching. Mm-hmm. And then they write their output to some really, really big hard drive. So how are these individuals working over the long weekend going to get access to these supersized clusters? Like you go online and you can rent from Amazon, actually. Oh, really? You can rent computers by the minute, by the hour. And you can, so you can rent wow. a thousand computers for one hour for a hundred dollars. And these are just computers that are hanging out in a, in a server farm that somewhere. aren't yep. using their processing power all of the time or something? Yep, yep. And uh. Amazon's trying to turn this, and they call that, actually call it um, hardware as a service or uh, utility computing because it's turning into utility like the, like the electric utilities. Okay. So, so I know that you use uh, an implementation of MapReduce called Hadoop. So yeah, what is Hadoop and how do you use it? So like I said, Google wrote their own version of MapReduce. And then that kind of and then they wrote a paper about it, which kind of taunted the rest of the world, mm-hmm. saying, look at how fast we can and how easy it is for our programmers to write distributed programs using our implementation of this old idea called MapReduce. So the rest of the world then retaliated by writing this open source version in Java, an open source language that they they can uh, that you can download yourself and run. So this is kind of, it's actually being led by a team at Yahoo, who, but the software is all free and open for you to download. So Yahoo's kind of giving, it's combating Google's um, initial bragging about MapReduce by their own version, which is not only are we going to write it, but we're going to write it in a transparent fashion so that anybody can both download the source code on their own and look at it, mm-hmm. but also contribute back to the project. And since Yahoo kind of started that with their core team, um, it's grown and people from all over are contributing to it, including us here at UC Berkeley. Mm. So I know you've been doing some work for Facebook with Hadoop. What's that been like? Um, well, one big thing is that it's huge. Uh, their, yeah. data, their data sets are really big, so those are always interesting. But another is that they have a unique application. It's it's a social network. Right. So networks um, or graphs right. are fascinating to computer scientists. Facebook has the the ultimate in that because not only are we looking at this huge graph, but it's interesting to everybody because mm-hmm. everybody's a node in right. this graph. Right. So you're you're connected to your friends, and you can run just like. You can run uh, queries against their data set that, that would make everybody jealous because you can find uh, such interesting things about how humans work and, and um, how college students work. And mm. So what have you, what in, what have you uh, learned about so how college students that's, work that's specifically? <laughs> Berkeley college? Uh, graduate student? No, actually, um, Matei and I aren't, aren't interested in that. That's one interesting <laughs> thing to but Facebook. But you could isolate the Berkeley <laughs> network on I, Facebook I can't, and I can't isolate to, anything because, uh, <laughs> because I'm not a Facebook employee. Okay. But that's why Facebook's application is interesting. Mm. And, what, and that's why they're using the Hadoop because it enables any of their programmers to write these really interesting queries against their you know their tons and warehouses full of data that mm-hmm. they collect mm-hmm. and find out interesting things to maybe direct ads better at you or something like mm-hmm. that so now I can't speak with any authority mm-hmm. about what's happening inside of Facebook but that's what why their problems interesting and why they're using Hadoop because it makes it easy for their developers to to write applications for such a large data set mm-hmm. and so what they're the reason they're interested in my, my work with Mate is because what, what we're focusing on is making Hadoop run faster mm. and they're one of 
you know, the people who are using it at such a large scale that even if we can improve it by a few percent um, points, then they will see, you know, a huge improvement in the amount of time it takes for these large queries to run. Good. So, okay, so let's talk about the your project specifically, what you're using Hadoop for. So you're, you're working on something called X-Trace. And I, have to, I love all these words, by the way, Hadoop and X-Trace and supersized computer clusters. Uh, so can you first explain what X-Trace is? Sure. That's actually a kind of difficult project that, uh, to explain it in, in an easy way to understand. Okay, well, good. This is your challenge. <laughs> um, so X-Trace is a type of tracing. Uh, tracing traditionally in computer science means we, whenever we're writing source code, we put these little statements in that print out on your computer screen or in a, in a text file somewhere um, useful information to the developer. Mm -hmm. So if there's a bug in your software, like if it stops working or crashes, we all get the little pop-ups that say, do you want to send this report to Microsoft mm -hmm. or Apple or whoever your operating system vendor is? The thing that it's going to actually send to Microsoft or Apple or whoever is it's going to be a big hunk, chunk of text that will represent what the state of the program was then, what it had it been doing on your computer. Uh, and maybe by looking at that and parsing it out, we can figure out why it crashed. Mm -hmm. So that's traditional tracing. And X-Trace is kind of a new approach to the same idea. But now instead of um, using these print statements inside of our programs, we we connect the statements to each other. So before, when we get into a distributed system, we actually care about the relationship between these these printouts or these kind of checkpoints um, in our application because now we're running on hundreds or thousands of computers. Mm -hmm. So if I have to collect this information from, from a thousand different computers and figure out when I clicked one button on one computer, what that caused on each of the other computers, I'd have to have some really smart way of kind of putting this this disparate set of data back into this into this one interleaved kind of contiguous <laughs> section of trace data. So what we do now is we kind of we add a little extra data to each print statement and as your application sends packets across the wire to from one computer in your cluster to another, it carries that information with it. So it makes each checkpoint that uh -huh. get, that gets reported in, in the log or in the trace aware of where it came from. Right. So now we can build these directed, again, we build graphs out of it. Right. So instead of a whole bunch of unconnected little balls in our graph or nodes, mm -hmm. we have a whole bunch of connected, um, a whole bunch of connected points. Mm -hmm. So now we can kind of, we can look at when you clicked in our graph, and we can just like follow the arrows mm -hmm. pointing to where that happened, and that can be on different computers. It can be halfway across the world, and it can be on the same computers. But and how is that displayed to you? Do you visualize it? Yeah, we you actually have some really awesome graphs. visualization. If you check out the project page, that we'll give a URL to at the end. We're um, gonna make you wait. <laughs> then you'll be able to see. Um, if you want to play with it, you can see that what MapReduce gives you is it gives you a very long initial thread which is just a bunch of setup happening on one computer. And then there's this huge burst. <laughs> and like out of one circle on the graph comes like 10,000 arrows <laughs> because it'll, it'll, it'll spawn multiple operations on each of the computers in your cluster. Uh -huh. So now it's, it's, it's some factor wow. of the number of computers in your cluster that comes out of this one graph that says, okay, now go. And then you're going to have all these parallel edges in your graph running wow. next to each other because everybody's doing their little part of the job. Right. And it's all going to return. So wow. it's typical. And I guess MapReduce is one of the kind of um, 
standard examples of this oh. sort of thing. You can start printing these things on T-shirts and selling them. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of computer scientists would love to yeah, buy that. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I saw like last week that um, one of the Yahoo guys who's working on on Hadoop set up a, a Hadoop store. So you can actually buy, and oh. their, their logo is an elephant, and um, you can buy the logo emblazoned T-shirts oh. and hats and but stuff But you don't now. see the, uh, the, the no, thread no, we should, the big No, no, we should propose that. that <laughs> it would be a good logo for them to use as a secondary logo to the elephant. Uh, so that's, uh, so combining um, the juicy stuff, combining Hadoop and X-Trace together, uh, so what happens when you do that? Yeah, so and now we take this really neat idea about path-based tracing that I just talked about with X-Trace, and we take this really popular framework, and we put them together, and we offer new insights into how Hadoop works. So the problem with Hadoop is that being open source and not being made by Google, basically, it's, it's, it's slower than mm -hmm. whatever Google could make. Google hires so many... Um, PhDs and computer scientists right out of school that they have more engineers than any other company by wow. far. Um, wow. Computer science engineers, that is, or software engineers. Huh. And so the software they write is is coveted by the open source community, and we want to emulate that. So um, by kind of in revealing and shedding some light on the inner workings of Hadoop, we're able to tease out the details about where time was spent inside the job. And then we can know where to focus our efforts so that... Um, we can improve Hadoop and make it faster. Um, okay, so we will be right back. On next week's show, I'll be talking to Stella Offner, PhD student from the astronomy department, about simulating star formation. So please join me for the graduates every Monday from 12 to 12.30 on Calex, and visit us on Facebook. Search for the graduates, K-A-L-X, in quotation marks, on Facebook. Welcome back. Today I'm talking to Andy Kinwinski from Computer Science. So let's talk about the broader implications of your work. Just the fact that any of our personal computers can now be part of a supersized computer cluster for an IT service or something else. Can you talk about the implications of that for the client-server distinction? People have um, discovered the value of distributed computing, or and this is a kind of a different type of distributed computing than we've been talking about in the show so far, mm. which uh, which is peer-to-peer -peer sharing or peer-to-peer -peer computing, and it represents a break from the traditional mo model of client-server, where now everybody's a client mm -hmm. and everybody's a server. Mm -hmm. So the way that we um, the way that we kind of capitalize upon that in in the realm of you know challenging the traditional client server is writing applications that do the same thing as these traditional client server and instead of now making that server really robust and really high powered we use a whole bunch of computers that, of our friends or maybe there's a whole bunch sitting in a warehouse and now we have uh, the ability to kind of go out and talk over the internet to all different types of computers and give them a little piece of of data and a little task to do on it, and maybe it's it's uh it's something like SETI at home, mm -hmm. where they give you some information that that they've collected from by pointing antennas at the sky, mm -hmm. and they want to know if we can if that little piece of information they gave you contains any noticeable patterns mm -hmm. because it should be all random if there's no aliens out there. But if there are any aliens that are trying to talk to us, then they're going to send us like some recognizable sequence of of 
bytes of, of ones and zeros or of numbers or something we can recognize. Mm -hmm. So if you want your computer to download a little chunk of, of data then and process it and check and see if any aliens have spoken in it and then send that back up to the server or to somebody else to process on for a while, then you can use SETI at home. And then mm -hmm. we can do this with protein folding, which mm -hmm. is another kind of biological application that's mm -hmm. folding at home. And there are even uh, more applications yeah. of this. So does peer-to-peer -peer computing end up consuming less energy? That's a problem we really care about in the Rad Lab is power. Um, and that's a problem that any of these very large players in the kind of Internet-sized data center or distributed computing world care about because it's getting to the point where they're building their data centers or these big warehouses of computers, which they have so many of, along rivers that have hydropower. And they're looking to build them in like Siberia where it's already cold so they don't have to cool them down because the major cost factors in power are, are in a data center, in a, in a warehouse full of computers, that is, are uh, paying for the electricity it takes to cool it. Um, so paying for cooling because it takes a really big air conditioner and also paying for the power it takes to run these computers. So you're right. Yes, it, one of the biggest consumers, and we've done a lot of uh, research in the Rad Lab, uh. and it's going to be um, a successor, one of the successors to the Rad Lab, an idea that came out of it, and looking at ways of hopefully turning computers off when we're not using them in our cluster of computers, in our data center, so to speak, and then looking at ways of making them go into sleep modes when they're not being used. If we need to, So the problem with turning computers off is that it takes a long time to come, for them to come back on or boot up. If we can just put them to sleep and cut the power consumption by like 60%, then they can come back on you know, in one-tenth the time of a, mm -hmm. of a cold boot. That's a good. That's a good thing. If we can distribute the the computing across people who are just volunteering their their yeah. computer cycles because they leave their computer running on at home anyway, which is a really bad idea. Everybody should turn their computer <laughs> off at night. Then we save even more money. So yeah, that's a that's a great thing that you brought up, and and there's a lot of research going on this here at the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. Um, uh, we've had talks and visiting speakers come in and talk to us about the major culprit is not actually in the Google and Yahoo sized data centers for the total number of watts consumed in useless cycles because these guys use their cycles. They care because they have to pay for them because it hits their bottom line, so they're interested in turning things off. Right. But where the majority, you know, the vast majority of these power cycles go is to people's computers sitting at home, leaving their monitor on, leaving their computer on, and not using it. So, uh -huh. it, And it's something, some ridiculously small percentage, like 5 or 10% of the time on right. average that, that of all of the added cycles on people's computers are used by some sitting there right. and the only reason we leave it on is because we hate waiting for it to boot up uh -huh. but really for the same reason yeah, yeah. If, if we turned it off we would we would be saving countless numbers of trees you hear that everyone <laughs> you can save trees you can save energy and you can dedicate your unused uh computer processing power to some you know virtuous project either your friend's it service that they're starting or looking for aliens and if you're interested in this you can look up Distributed Computing on Wikipedia. You'll find a list of projects there. In your in your vision statement, I clearly read this vision statement closely. Uh, it also says that innovation is fastest when it can leverage well-encapsulated prior building blocks as well as lessons, which is I mean, essentially this is the story of code mm -hmm. right, of, and arguably the story of... Uh, the evolution of life. <laughs> um, 
But and you're seeing a lot of this now, right? Where the building blocks are just getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. and it's letting people that that don't didn't don't necessarily have computer programming skills or even web design skills, and all of a sudden you can create a blog, you can develop software. It's like you're almost using the web as a software development platform. You can manage a data center. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what this will mean for? people who are not necessarily computer programmers? Yeah. Um, so you're right that in systems, which is what the Rad Lab is all about, traditionally we care a lot about building blocks that have really well-defined interfaces for other blocks so that we don't – and that's what encapsulation really means is that I can do whatever I want inside my black box and you can't tell what's going on inside of it, but you know that if you ask it a question in a, in a well-formatted way – that I've told you how to ask, I will give you an answer in another well-formatted way that you know how to interpret. So, and, and we've done this at operating system levels and lower file system levels so that I can be given an assignment in my, in my programming class, in my systems class, my like operating systems class, that says, you know, develop a file system. And that means that it's, this is what runs on the hard drive of your computer. And the rest of the computer doesn't need to know how it works, but it needs to know that when it asks for a file from your, from your system, from your block, it's going to get one back. Or it's, it's going to get something that says, you know, sorry, I don't have that file. And so, like you said, this is at a small level. And we all use this every day on our computers. People have all of these blocks talking to each other underneath every mouse click that they don't know about. And that's kind of the, the beauty of this. But what the Rad Lab's doing is kind of continuing that vision and, as you said, taking it to the next higher level. When the, when the Internet came along, it revolutionized everything in computer science because now instead of caring about one computer, we care about millions of computers. Mm-hmm. And we can have them talk to each other really easily. So it made, it made computer systems available and able to talk to each other um, from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So what we care about now is making those building blocks much larger. So that um, the guy, and so we're not really targeting the, the blogger or someone who, um, you know, uses technology at the very highest of consumer levels, but we're targeting the guy who serves that person. So mm-hmm. we're kind of one level of, of disconnection or abstraction away from them. And mm-hmm. um, that really isn't that much farther from kind of the level of ignorance or not knowing, if you will, kind of how the system works. Because that person doesn't have to have a computer science degree. Definitely doesn't have to be a PhD to know how to type up some PHP code or some, you know, Ruby code or some simple programming language that they can write this big idea of theirs. So then they can spend all their time talking to their friends and convincing them to use their application Mm -hmm. and not worrying about what our big black building blocks are doing underneath their every click. Uh Uh-huh. So, okay, so finally, so which revolutionary IT service are you going to launch over the course of a weekend? Oh, that's a really tough question. Um, hmm, I think that when the idea strikes me, uh, I'll hopefully write it down and stick it away uh, in my pocket for the next four years. Because Four years? Yeah, and hope that nobody does it because one of the, like, the leading killers of PhD students in computer science at Berkeley is startups. And uh, so, but it kills you or it gets you out uh, faster. Well, no, it doesn't get you out faster. It gets you to drop out faster. Right. Well, well, at this point, that's that's uh, that's almost like something you should, you know, it's like <laughs> I being a Harvard dropout. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you want to be a millionaire, I didn't drop out of Harvard though. I should say I didn't even go to Harvard. <laughs> okay, that's how. <laughs> 
if you if you want to be a millionaire, then that's the way to do it. But uh -huh. but um, anybody who is in computer science for a PhD at UC Berkeley doesn't want to be a millionaire yet. Ah. Um, we're, we care more about the research, or we so we keep telling ourselves uh, than we do about the million dollars. Is so. that something you can tell from the from the Berkeley network on the on the social graph? No, maybe you <laughs> like, could. Why does the Berkeley network look so much different from the Harvard one? Oh, right, because none of them want to be millionaires. Stanford, well ah. known for for uh, startups, ah. students leaving for startups. So in research, we've kind of put that on hold for a while until we get our PhDs out of the way, where you know we're able to focus on research and not on making a lot of money. Mm. <laughs> but that being said, if I had to uh, if I had to go and do, do a web startup, then uh, I think that it, it would definitely be something that I would design in Ruby on Rails, and it would probably have something to do with uh, with cooking. Oh, really? Yeah. Is uh, that I, like a personal? I think I think it would be neat to empower. Um, and this is one of like tens or hundreds right, of ideas that I've thrown around with friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, it'd be cool to empower people to see what other people in their cooking network ah, have in their kitchens right now and kind of, um, you know, know that if I get together with this guy and we want to cook for the afternoon because I like cooking, that if I brought these five ingredients, yeah. I know he has these ingredients yeah. already, we could make this dinner. Yeah. And I can kind of select which uh, which dinners I want to invite my neighbors over I for. I thought of uh, visualizing that. You're talking about social graphs but take all the food in your in your fridge and plug it into the thing and have mm -hmm. it just visualize for you all the amazing <laughs> things you can make with it right exactly and also tell you that you're only one ingredient away from so therefore you should invite that friend over because they have yep. it sitting in there <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay good well it's been great talking to you andy thank you yeah i had a great time and if you'd like to keep up with the work that Andy and Matei and the Rad Lab are doing, I'll finally give you that URL. It is radlab.cs.berkeley.edu. You've been listening to The Graduates on KALX Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. Please visit us on Facebook and join me next Monday from 12 to 1230.